Genesis 39, picking up in verse 1. Which says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. I want you to understand this morning as we come back now to the story of Joseph, began in Genesis 37, we took a pause, but now we're back in Genesis 39 to this remarkable story that what we see in the story of Joseph is, is the pattern that as I prayed a moment ago is not unusual. This is the pattern. This is how God works. So you might wanna pay close attention because you may see some parallels even in your own life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Six hours after Jesus was nailed to and hung up on the cross, his voice rent the darkness with emotionally stirring words. Even to this day, to read them, it is stirring to us. Words that have been contemplated and pondered, words that are thought-provoking, and words that have sometimes been misjudged misconstrued, misunderstood. Matthew 27, 46 says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we ask, why did he say that? What did he mean? And some imagine a divine departure, that, that in that moment, the father actually turned his back on the son, unable to look upon a sin-soaked Jesus. I disagree. Now, if you were with us this past summer, we went through what we called the Savior Psalms, Psalms that all were prophetic of Jesus and of his life and of his experience. And if you went through that, you already heard my opinion on Jesus' words when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I'm gonna give my opinion again. God was not divided from God. The father did not turn his back on the son. The father did not look away, did not abandon. In fact, nothing in all scripture indicates that the father ever abandoned the son, far from it. In fact, just the opposite. It's not in his nature. If God were to abandon the son, what would make you think that he wouldn't abandon you or abandon me? Well then, why did Jesus say it? Why would he cry out such a thing? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me if in fact the father had not forsaken the son? Two reasons, I think. First of all, that Rabbi Yeshua is directing his disciples to the prophetic psalm, which is exactly what he was quoting. Let's turn there now, Psalm 22. 
Psalm 22 in your Bibles. It's, it's toward the middle, pretty easy to find. Psalm 22 is what we often call the Psalm of the Cross. We went through this line by line over the summer, and you might wanna go back and listen to that because it's incredibly significant, not only in its prophecy of Jesus on the cross, but also as to what it says to you and to me today. But in Psalm 22, verse one, it reads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is quoting the psalm. It doesn't make his words any less emotionally stirring, but he's quoting the psalm, he's pointing to the psalm. This is how rabbis taught. They would begin by reading the first line of a psalm or of a passage so the students knew where to go, knew where he was preaching from. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalm continues, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, or inhabit the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Skip down in the psalm to verse 16. You see even more of the prophetic here. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. And this was written several hundred years before crucifixion had been invented. Verse 17, I can count all my bones, they look at me and stare at me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And that was our verse that we looked at on Good Friday service. All specifically fulfilled in Jesus, by Jesus and through Jesus. He's pointing his followers both then and now to this prophecy. Fulfilled at that point before our very eyes at the cross. So the first thing Jesus is doing when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is saying, go to Psalm 22, read Psalm 22. That's what you're watching right now. This was God's plan. But the second thing to note about Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have no doubt that in his humanity, Jesus felt alone on the cross at Calvary. He felt alone in his flesh, the flesh of Jesus, the, the humanity, the human nature of Jesus crying out, feeling alone, doesn't mean he was alone. See, that's the problem. There are often times in our lives where we think we're alone, but we're not. We feel forsaken, doesn't mean we are. And I'm certain the flesh of Jesus at that point felt more alone than he had ever felt. That doesn't mean that the Father turned his back, and I prove it to you. Look down at verse 24 of Psalm 22, which says, he has not despised nor abhorred, abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he, that is God, hidden his face from him, that is Jesus. But when he, Jesus, cried to him, the Father, for help, he heard, he heard contained in the very same psalm, in the very same cry of David, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
is the guarantee that when we cry in affliction, when Jesus cried out in affliction on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God heard, which makes it, by the way, all the more emotionally stirring because that means the father heard the son crying out in his loneliness. The father wasn't off doing something else, ignoring, but was engaged in the very pain of his son for your sake and for mine. The Hebrew writer catches this. Hebrews chapter five, verse seven says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. He was heard. God was with him. God did not turn his back on Jesus. And I wish we could take that concept and rip it out of contemporary Christianity because it's a flawed theology in my humble opinion. What does that have to do with Genesis 39? Why did we start there? I need to ask you all this question today personally. Do you ever wonder? Have you recently wondered? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt like far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning? The presence of God, God with you, the Lord with us, is not primarily identified by how we feel. It is not primarily identified by our circumstances. And by the way, it is not commonly confirmed in revelations. What do you mean? I mean, auditory revelations from God, visual revelations from God. Even in dreams, we see these things in the Bible. We know the Bible says that these do happen, will happen, can happen for people, but it is not common. So should I stop listening? No. Obviously, any revelation the Lord brings is food for us. But to hear the Lord, hey, I have, I do, I listen for the Lord to speak. I desire to hear him. To see the Lord in visual representation, to dream dreams. And the Bible says, your young men will have visions and your old men will dream dreams. The older I get, the more I'm dreaming. But auditory and visual and, and, and even dream-like visions, they're not the norm. They're not typical as we might think. So how do I know he's here? How do I know the Lord is with me? I mean, unless he speaks and I hear, and, and you've all had, we've all had the feeling that, well, he speaks to that guy. He speaks to her clearly. Well, that person's heard. Why don't I hear? Why don't we hear more clearly or specifically, how can I just know if I'm not hearing, if I'm not seeing, and I'm not dreaming? How do I know he's here? How do I know he hasn't forsaken me? Let's ask Joseph. Chapter 39, again, picks up the story of Joseph immediately where we left off at the end of chapter 37. His brothers sold him as a slave to Midianites. And then it tells us that Ishmaelites then sell him as a slave to Potiphar in Egypt. So either Midianites sold him to Ishmaelites who sold him to Potiphar or the Midianites and Ishmaelites. Sometimes those two names can be used interchangeably because Ishmaelites is a larger 
picture and other groups came out of the Ishmaelites, but it doesn't really matter. Joseph was sold and now he's been bought by the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. I I want you to note and pay attention to this as we go through chapter 39. We're gonna do the whole chapter this morning. And there's a, a balanced symmetry between the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, between Potiphar's house in the first six verses and the prison house in the last several verses. It's like bookends here in this aspect of the life of Joseph. We're gonna take this in three parts. So the three parts are, I'll tell you ahead of time, blessing, part one, blessing, part two, blamelessness, and part three, bond. Blessing, blamelessness, and bond. Verse one. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. This is just a side note, but I think important bodyguard here. He's the captain of the bodyguard. What does that mean for this this man, Potiphar? Bodyguard is tabachim, and it means in Hebrew, butcher. If you wanted to go down to the butcher, you'd go to the tabachim. So he's the captain of the butchers? What is like, he works in the meat market? What's what's the thing? And I don't know if it was a wet market or not, hopefully not, but he's the captain of the tavahim, the butcher? It also means, rightly so, executioner. Because the executioner would butcher a life. Now, if you put that together with what we see further down in the chapter, we see another word that's originally from Egyptian, Uh, transliterated into Hebrew, it's only used twice in the Torah, and that's Genesis 39, verses 20 and 22, and it's the word prisoners, prisoners. In the verb form, it's asure. In the noun form, it's asurim, and it means those who are incarcerated in the king's prison or the king's fortress, the asure, the asurim. This is not just any old prisoner. These are the king's prisoners. And so because of this, we believe that Potiphar, as captain of the executioners, oversaw the king's prison. And that'll come into play later in Joseph's life. He's the overseer of the king's prison. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. I would encourage you to circle that, underline it, and highlight it in your Bible. The Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So this is part one, blessing. Blessing. Literally verse two tells us that Joseph was caused to be or made to be a successful man. That phrase, he became a successful man. No, no, he was made a successful man. In other words, it was passive on his part. This was not his work. This wasn't Joseph's self-initiative or pulling himself up by his bootstraps that did it. This was God's hand in his life. This is something we need to comprehend and understand, that our success is not bought by ourselves. True success, godly success is what he does in a life that is willing. Joseph was simply present. He was at class that day, and the Lord did it. 
the Lord made him successful. And beyond that, his success was not a measure of status. Note that he's still in his master's house. He's still a slave. How in the world can you be a successful slave? Everything Joseph touched was blessed. It was not his. And that's what's fascinating here is as a slave in Potiphar's house, everything Joseph did because the Lord was with him, was blessed, was better, was made successful, and who benefited? Potiphar did, not Joseph. Joseph would have as far as respect and and honor within the house, and yet, and yet, he wasn't gaining anything. So when we talk about status symbols, you know, what, what's, what's my status? Is it the car that I drive or the house that I live in? The number of credit cards I have or the freedom I have to travel? What's my status symbol? Well, for Joseph, his status was simply that he was a conduit of blessing. Still a slave, but a conduit of blessing. Notice also that the Bible doesn't say that Potiphar saw the Lord. No, what it says is his master saw that the Lord was with him. He saw that the Lord was with him, how the Lord caused all he did to prosper in his hand. That's important because Potiphar was a pagan. Potiphar didn't believe in Yahweh, but he could not deny the effects, the outward workings of the Lord's presence on display in Joseph's life. He saw that the Lord was with him, Can people see the Lord in your life? Can people see Jesus in you? They may not even believe. They may not even know the name Jesus or understand that this is the Lord. But it's that, I can't quite put my finger on it, detection of divine presence, his divine presence. What do you mean? Let me describe it to you. It's someone who's, who has a love with no strings attached. It's someone with a joy that's infectious, a peace that just doesn't make sense. It's a patience that, that calms the soul, a kindness that softens the heart, a goodness that blesses freely. It's a faithfulness unending, a gentleness that's tender. It's a self-control that runs counter to human instinct. Yeah, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. What I just described to you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit, singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because all of these things come about when God is with you. This is the outward result of the Lord in your life, of God's presence. And so without preaching a word, when people see these things in a person, in a life, it's the presence of God, and they will recognize that as different. Potiphar did. Potiphar's looking at Joseph just going, I don't know why, but this guy is just, he, he just loves and he doesn't ask for anybody to love back and he's, he's joyful working. He's a slave in the house whistling down the hallways. Wanna quit that whistling, Joseph? <laughs> he, he evidenced, I don't know exactly how, but he evidenced the very presence of God, Yahweh, in his life to a man who did not believe in Yahweh. 
Potiphar saw the presence. Something noticeably different in this young man. And by the way, let's just acknowledge this right now. Four times in this chapter, four times. So twice in Potiphar's house, and then again twice in the prison house. We see why Potiphar saw Yahweh in Joseph. In verse two, the Lord was with him. And then we see again uh, in verse three, the Lord was with him. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse three, the Lord was with him. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. And then again in verse 23, the Lord was with him. You see the symmetry? The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him in Potiphar's house. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him in the prison house. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's how the presence of God is read in the world. It's through you. Because he is with you. It's the presence of the Lord. There is a perceptible difference in the life of someone who is walking and the Lord is with them. Verse four. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, he put in his charge. Literally, he put in his hand. And it came about from that that from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field, so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him, there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, there may be a little strain of anti-Semitism here. And I want to point it out because it's really easy to miss. He says everything he gave over to Joseph. Joseph had charge of everything. He oversaw everything. Everything was in Joseph's hands except Potiphar's food, except the food which he ate. How's that anti-Semitic? We're going to find this later on, but in Genesis 43, 32, it tells us, they served Joseph by himself and his brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Why? Because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Why won't Potiphar sit down and have a meal with Joseph? It's the one thing that he would not allow Joseph to touch, his own food. Why? It's loathsome. For all this servant of the Lord is doing, for all the blessing that is flowing through Joseph. Man, is that not a picture of the world we live in today? For all the blessing of the people of Israel that God blesses the world through them as he promised he would. And yet, so many people find Israel loathsome today. It's a sad reality of a satanic truth, anti-Semitism. We'll see that on display later in the story. Potiphar, he wouldn't eat with Joseph, but he treated him well. <laughs> and he sure did enjoy all the blessings that are coming because the Lord was with Joseph. The blessings. Proverbs 10, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. He adds no sorrow to it 
or it can also be translated, nor does toil or labor increase it. It just comes from God. It just pours out from God. It's just blessing from God. Now, so far in the story, I read this and I think, I get why Joseph is blessed. That makes sense to me. Why Potiphar? Why does he get to be the recipient of all this blessing? And I'll tell you why. It's because, listen, it's because Potiphar blessed Joseph. Oh, so quid pro quo Joe? No, no, that's not what's going on here. This is the ongoing, unconditional Abrahamic covenant in play. Potiphar blesses Joseph and Potiphar gets blessed. The Jew is blessed and the one blessing the Jew gets blessed himself. Genesis 12, three, God said, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, which includes the Potiphar's, will be blessed. The covenant promise is still in play. And by the way, the covenant promise is still in play today for all those people, groups, nations who will bless Israel. You wanna be blessed? Bless Israel. Bless the lineage of Abraham. Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, Jesus, who was a Jew, says, even the least of them, you did it to me. But there is one problem for those who, like Joseph, desire to be a conduit of blessing. Those who wanna live their lives to bless others with the blessing that comes from God, there's an issue, there's a problem that comes with it. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse six continues. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I need to pause there just for a moment. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and this, while describing a a few different women, only describes one other man in the entire Bible. There's only one who, like Joseph, is described as being handsome in form and in appearance. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance, and it's the same Hebrew phrase. So you have two who are described as handsome in form and appearance, and that is Joseph and David. Two good-looking guys described that way. Anyone expect me to say Jesus? Isaiah 53, verse two tells us he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I was thinking about that, and Joseph being so handsome, and David being so striking, and along comes Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, and guess what? There's nothing really about him that was impressive looking, nothing attractive that would lure people or draw people to him. Oh, he's just so stunning. He had none of that. Just a common looking guy, Middle Eastern Jew. The comeliness of Jesus, the attraction of Jesus that has drawn so many people across 2,000 years is so much more than skin deep. His attraction goes way beyond the flesh. 
And it speaks truly to our comprehension and our maturity as followers of Jesus who said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and our life. And see, that's, that's the deal. That's not how we look and it's not the appearance and it's not the flesh and it's not the physical. It's the spirit who gives life. It's the spirit who is attractive in us. It's the spirit who draws us together and it's Jesus, it's who he is, it's his nature and character that makes so many fall so deeply in love with him. It wasn't his physical appearance. And I think Joseph as he was, he understood that. He, he knew that. You see, Joseph was blessed not because of physical appearance but because of the divine presence of God with him. So why is his physical attraction even mentioned here? Because it caught the roving eyes of Mrs. Potiphar. And this brings me to part two, blamelessness. Verse seven, it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Wow. Wow, what a remarkable reaction and response on the part of Joseph. In fact, the old rabbis gave him the greatest title that Judaism can bestow. They refer to him as Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef HaTzadik, Joseph the Righteous. Oh yes, Joseph the Righteous. And even in synagogues today, when Joseph is talked about, he is often just called Yosef HaTzadik. The righteous Joseph, the blameless Joseph. Now, listen real quickly. Five quick notes on blamelessness. I wanna hit these bullet points and you can think about them and go back and chew on them later, but they're so significant in these few verses. Number one, note this. Joseph's reason not to sin is usually our excuse to sin. What? Yeah, authority without accountability. You put someone in charge with no one watching them and the natural man says, great, I can do whatever I want. Who, who want? Who's gonna know? I have total control over this. I can, I can run the tables. I can take care of myself. The spiritual man, the spiritual man sees authority with no accountability as an even greater motivation to deeper loyalty. If you work in a job or a position or you do something where no one's watching, man, how much more integrity is then required? How much more are you as a follower of Jesus called not to sin, but often it's the very excuse we use to sin. Secondly, Joseph sees his master's wife as rightfully withheld, withheld. And yet from Adam and Eve all the way down through history, the natural man, the natural woman, wants what we can't have. Even if it's the only thing we can't have, that's what we desire most. I can have anything I want, but I can't have her. And then I want her. 
Adam and Eve had everything in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they couldn't eat. They were not to eat of that fruit. That was the only thing. They could eat any other fruit, all the other veggies. They could drink from the streams. They could run naked all day long, but they could not eat from the one tree. What'd they do? We gotta try this fruit. And this is the, the attitude in the natural. We want what we can't have. And oftentimes people will say, well, that's just arbitrary. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Potiphar's wife. You're withholding things from us, God, with your arbitrary rules and your unfair statements, making certain things off limits, whether it's fruit or sex. We say, I can't have it. It makes me want it. That's the sin nature. But blameless Joseph sees instead not the one thing he can't have and so he desires. He sees the one thing withheld as a secure boundary. I don't pass this line. I don't cross this line. Joseph, number three, calls this what it is. And this is important, folks. He calls it what it is. That is, he says, this is a great evil or a great wickedness. How could I do this great evil? Immediately, right out of the gate, he calls it out. This is sin. And one of the worst things the church can do is avoid calling sin, sin. And we do it all the time. Sin, by God's definition, that which is sin is simply sin. Doesn't mean there's not Restoration doesn't mean there's not forgiveness, doesn't mean that he can't pull you out of that sin and cleanse you and restore you and make your heart right, but sin is sin. And when we stop calling sin, sin, we get lured easily into it. We start to be okay with it. Romans 1.18, Paul said clearly, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And calling sin what it is slows down, at least slows down the rush to do it. When we call sin what it is, we see right up front, it's ugly, sick, rotting underbelly. It's a whole lot less enticing when we know that it's wickedness from the start. The fourth thing to recognize, Joseph sees this come on not only as sin against his master, but as sin against God. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's not that he's hurting someone else, and granted, my sin can. My sin can harm other people. My sin can harm myself. But it is only and rightfully sin against God because God alone is holy. God alone is the only one who has not sinned. So while I may sin against you and hurt you, guess what? You've sinned against someone else and hurt them. So our sin is a mess of humanity and it's all in the same boat. God has never sinned. He took sin on himself at the cross, Jesus did, but he has never sinned of his own. So when I sin, it is truly and rightfully against God. You know, that's something that David realized after his great sin. Here we see righteous Joseph realize it ahead of time. I can't do this and sin against God. But David said, Psalm 51, verse four, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. And fifth, here, Joseph, we see him, Joseph the righteous, Joseph the blameless, go immediately into sin avoidance 
mode, and this is worth taking note, verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her, to lie beside her, or be with her. He shut his ears, he would not hear this, and he kept his distance. Joseph didn't think, "Eh, I've got this, no big deal, I can hang with Mrs. Potts by the pool. He knew better. He stayed away from that one. It's the only sin in the entire house. It's the only enticement. He stayed away from it. Joseph, the righteous, who was strong and blameless and handling life well and trusting the Lord and knowing the Lord was with him, and yet this one tiny sin, this one sin presents itself, and Joseph says, I'm not going there. I will not be alone with her. I will not be in the same room with her. I will not listen to her when she calls across the hallway. I will stay away. And there's wisdom in that. Proverbs chapter five. I'll just read this to you. Proverbs five, but it's worth going back to and reading again. Verse three says, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. He says further down in verse 22, his own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his own sin. And he will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Man, I, we live in a world and a culture that just, that just you know, diminishes the seriousness of adultery, of sexual sin. The word just, world just says, you know, as far as blamelessness goes, meh. <laughs> blamelessness, whatever, you know. My friends, blamelessness is spiritual power. Please note that. Blamelessness, purity, is spiritual power. I'm pausing on this, taking a moment with this blamelessness because I've known far too many young men and young women over the years who've given in to sexual sin and gutted their own spiritual power. You have no strength in the spirit where there is not purity. Dealing with a situation right now. I won't go into it, but talking with a person who is really struggling and it's like, stop the sexual sin and you will find strength return. I wanna follow God, but I'm so lured to Mrs. Potiphar. Stop it. Don't do that. You're gutting yourself with every liaison, every sexual encounter, every sin that you commit in that realm. You're killing yourself. Purity is power. And note that (laughs) purity drives the devil away. Blamelessness pushes back against the attempts of the enemy to lure, and by the way, the devil is undeniably involved in this story, just as we see Mrs. Potiphar coming on to Joseph, note that it says day after day, verse 10. What's she doing? She's trying to wear him down. 
day after day, opportunity after opportunity, wear him down, come back around, and try to get under his skin. Well, Luke 4, 13 tells us that is the pattern of the devil, who when he had finished every temptation, he left Jesus until an opportune time. In other words, I'll be back, and he will. You think, oh, I've overcome in this moment. Another moment will present itself. Blamelessness and purity is power when the devil comes back around. Please be aware of that. We see this in Joseph, this remarkable blamelessness. Well, verse 11 says, now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside and I guarantee that was because Mrs. Potiphar had excused them. I promise you, he came in there and she was setting him up where there would be no one else in the house. Verse 12 says, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And that's the godly standard. That's what you do for all temptation, but especially for sexual sin. That's it. 1 Corinthians 6.18, taking this story, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Run. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says again, flee from youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Run away. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Peter says, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, the presence of God, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's how you pursue blamelessness. It's how you maintain blamelessness before the Lord. You pursue purity and you run away from immorality. Okay, but what if you run away from immorality? What if you run away and you pursue blamelessness, but you get blamed anyway? And that's where the story continues, verse 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to him, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Verse 19, now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. And so we see the second case here of anti-Semitic disdain. She points out first to the slaves of the house, building her case, and then to her husband Potiphar, she points out this Hebrew. See what this Hebrew has done? What has that got to do with anything? except the fact that, again, it's an anti-Semitic pose. And we're told in verse 19 that after she does this, Potiphar rages, but listen, 
We don't know at who. We don't know who Potiphar is angry with. Very interesting. The Bible doesn't tell us. We assume, oh, his anger's raging at Joseph for doing this thing. Hey, Potiphar's known nothing but blessing from this young man. Potiphar has seen the Lord with him. Potiphar has been aware of the integrity with which Joseph has walked to the point that he gave everything into his hand. Potiphar deeply trusted Joseph, and I guarantee you Potiphar knew his wife. And so his anger rages. What are you saying? I'm just saying, after knowing the blessing and the blamelessness, Potiphar, he had to respond, he had to act, but he didn't go as far as he could. Look at verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Potiphar was captain of the executioners, overseer of the king's prison, and he easily could have just had Joseph executed, but he doesn't. Why not? I think the blessings and the blamelessness. He knew the blessings of the Lord through Joseph. He saw the blamelessness of God in Joseph. And so it's just my opinion, I don't know, but I don't think Potiphar believed his wife. I think Mrs. Potiphar had made clear too much over the years who she was. But he's angry because now he's gonna be robbed of all this, of the blessings. And he sees what he has to do now to this blameless young man. And again, I, I may be wrong about Potiphar. We just don't know. But all of this now brings me to really what I wanted to talk about this morning. Part three. Part three, bond. Joseph's bond as he heads into prison. And by the way, He's in prison now. Don't think this was easy. Bad enough, the young man was hated by his brothers. Worse, the young man was stripped by his brothers and thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery by his own family and then hauled off to foreign Egypt. Bad enough that he was sold into this house. But then the Lord begins to promote him. The Lord begins to bless him. The Lord begins to bring success into his hands and life stabilizes for Joseph. Things are looking up. Things are looking good. Now he's in prison. Oh, Lord. And by the way, don't think that this was easy for Joseph, especially not at first. Psalm 105, David gives us more insight into Joseph. Psalm 105, 18 says, they afflicted his feet with fetters he himself was laid in irons. Now we know more of what prison was like for Joseph until the time, Psalm 105, 19, that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. That is, tested Joseph. Listen clearly to this. The word of the Lord tested him. And we come to a mature lesson for the follower of Christ. You seek to bless others. You follow Jesus blamelessly with integrity. You reject the come-ons of the world. You try to humbly walk with your God and then things go bad. So you try to trust more and walk further and things go from bad to worse. And so you try to follow and trust and believe but then things go from worse to even worse. What's going on? 
when you find yourself, perhaps even after years of following Jesus, crying out in your heart, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can you allow this? Far from my groanings is my deliverance. This is the lesson for the spiritually mature. Please hear this. Sometimes God brings you to the king's prison. You might say, isn't it enough, oh Lord, that that Joseph got stripped and tossed into a pit and sold as a slave? Isn't it enough that when he finally starts that upward ride of promotion and promise that you allow this targeted indignation against him? That just doesn't make sense. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, that does not add up in this world. But I remind you, 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And you know what is nearly as foolish as the word of the cross? The whole crucifixion, everything that happened to Jesus, it does not make rational sense for him to be glorious God and end up nailed to the cross. That's foolishness. That's not how it's supposed to work. You know what's nearly as foolish as the word of the cross? The way of the cross. Where Jesus says, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Joseph's is the story of a man who loses his life for God's sake. The whole reason all of this happens is the sake of the Lord. Eventually, Joseph is gonna explain that to his brothers. Eventually, that maturity comes to full bloom. As Joseph says, Genesis 45, verse five, God sent me before you to preserve life. Genesis 45, verse seven, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. That's why all this happened. And the reality is here, that Joseph could not serve the greater will of God while serving in Potiphar's house. He couldn't go further. So God had to take him down to bring him up, and he brought him down to the king's prison. The king's prison. And there in the king's prison, God begins to raise him up higher and higher, ultimately, to the house of Pharaoh himself. Did Joseph know the plan? when he was tossed into prison? Probably not. (laughs) And maybe that's the thing to recognize. Joseph's experience being ripped out of Potiphar's house and thrown into prison, might Joseph have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Might he have cried out to the Lord, felt alone, felt like, oh no, it's going from good to bad to worse? Listen, Derek Kidner says, Joseph's humiliation, severe enough before, is reenacted at a deeper level, (laughs) yet not too deep for God. I really like that. And again, Psalm 105, 19 says that he was in prison until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord 
tested him. Joseph's journey from pit to promotion and then to prison. Listen, was as much for Joseph as it was for anybody else. Yes, it was deliverance for his family. Yes, it was deliverance for Israel. Yes, God was working out a long-term plan, but it was also for Joseph. What do you mean? I was out walking on Thursday night, one of the real pleasures of this season, just out walking, and, and I was praying the Lord's Prayer, and, I, and I'd heard this recently, and I, I thought, what a great idea to pray the Lord's Prayer and just be praying through the Lord's Prayer in this season, allowing the Lord's Prayer to kind of guide your prayer. Take it line by line, pray a line, and then pray for a while about that. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name, and, and to pray about that. And, and so I was going through this. I was going line through line, I was just, and I remember to line and then I would pray and remember to line and then pray and I got down to deliver us from evil and it hit me that Joseph being sent to prison was God delivering him from evil. I mean, God took him as far away from that adulterous Mrs. Potts as you could possibly take anybody. Got him out of there, got him into a protected place where he could not engage in this sin at all. We don't even know, was there a point day after day after day where blameless Joseph was beginning to crack? Maybe not, and I don't mean to put that on Joseph, but how would you be if over and over this opportunity kept presenting itself, God pulled him out of there and put him in prison? Yeah, for the greater plan, but also for Joseph. This was a safe place, ironically, for Joseph to be. But it's even more. Psalm 69, verse 32 I'll read verse 29. It says, I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. And then Psalm 69, verse 32, the humble have seen and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. Listen closely. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his prisoners. His prisoners, the king's prisoners. The Lord does not despise his prisoners. Joseph's bond wasn't the prison or its chains. Joseph's bond was the Lord. You see, the way of the cross, whether it leads into prison or through loss or even through the valley of the shadow of death, the way of the cross is the way of those who know this truth, who know this fact, the Lord is with them. The Lord is with them. The way of the cross surpasses all life circumstances. The way of the cross confirms the bond. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And watch this. In the king's prison, verse 21, oh, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge or to his hand all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible. He was the doer, the Bible says. So now we're back in the symmetry of the very first part of the chapter. We're seeing the same thing happen again now in prison for Joseph. And verse 23 says, the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did 
the Lord made to prosper. Joseph's life takes up 25% of Genesis. The largest single section about one individual in the entire book. And yet in Joseph's life, this chapter, chapter 39, listen, it's the only time where the name Yahweh appears. How many times does it appear in chapter 39? Anyone wanna guess? Seven times. Seven times in Genesis 39, we hear Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And further, now listen, get this. This is amazing about Joseph. We don't ever see Yahweh appear or even hear him speak to Joseph a single time. Not even in his dreams does Yahweh communicate with Joseph at all as he did with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not once. And it's another reason that he is called Yosef HaZadik, Joseph the Righteous. Rabbi Ian Pear, as quoted by Dennis Prager, said, in a world in which God is silent, in a world in which God appears absent, Joseph sees God everywhere. See, this is what makes the story of Joseph so remarkable and so personal for so many of us. Four times in this chapter, we read, the Lord was with Joseph. That is the divining quality of Joseph's life. If you could say one thing about Joseph and what made him blameless, what made him righteous, what brought blessing through this man, it's that the Lord was with Joseph, we know that, that defined Joseph, and yet we never see him hear from God directly. We never see him get direct visual revelation from the Lord. We never see, he's a dreamer, but we never see him dream anything in which God speaks to him or talks to him or says, I, the Lord, am with you, but he was with him. With the king of kings, it's not prison. Sure, the Lord, the world will see a prison. The world will look at a Christian and see a prison. The world will look at a Christian and say, okay, you've got duties required and there are desires withheld and life that ties you down from doing all these great fun things that we like to do. But you know what we know as followers of Jesus? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty is the king's prison. So the bond of Joseph in, in prosperity or in prison was that strong, unbreakable withness of the Lord. The withness that the Lord was with him and in fact, we could say the witness is the one who knows the witness of the Lord. Those who are aware that the Lord is with you. Acts chapter seven, verse nine, Stephen was preaching, said the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery, yet God was with him. Stephen had read Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with him. And Stephen said, and so he rescued him from all his afflictions. 
But Paul says in Philippians 4.12, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Lord is with you. The witness of the Lord is the witness of the Lord in my heart. Now, listen, in times of silence, or in the appearance of absence, when the heart cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People still wanna know, how can I know that he's with me? It's called faith. And I know even saying that, I struggled with this this week, because I knew that was the answer. But I know in saying that to some people, they'll say, oh, that's what you Christians say. It's just faith. Well, I'm just supposed to believe he's with me when I don't feel him with me, when I don't see him with me, when all the circumstances would indicate otherwise? I'm just supposed to have faith? Psalm 22, verse five, says, to you they cried out and were delivered. Listen, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. The relationship of, of trust, of faith in the Lord is one that is tested, and it is tried, and it is proven over time. You keep trusting. You keep trusting. And if you're short on faith, cry out. Call out to him. Even crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even crying out, far from my groanings is my deliverance, Lord. You keep crying out to him because even the act of crying out, why have you forsaken me, is faith. Because you're crying out to him. Because you're calling out to Jesus. Oh, the Lord was with Joseph. Guess what? Joseph doesn't say that. The Bible says that. The Bible tells us so. You know what else the Bible tells us? Jesus loves you. The Bible tells us so. We learned that in a Sunday school children's song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Joseph, at this point, would say to you, would say to me, the Lord was with me. But at the time, did he know? At the time, could he be certain? All he could do was trust. And the Bible tells us, yes, in fact, the Lord was with Joseph. I know Jesus loves me. How do you know, Rick? I know on a good day, I know on a bad day, Jesus loves me. How do you know? The Bible tells me so. And I trust him. And he has delivered me in that trust and he will deliver me again in that faith. And I remind you as we end here, what Jesus said at the beginning of what would be a tough three-year ministry. Jesus sat down in the synagogue of Nazareth. The scroll had been handed to him. He unraveled it, and he began to read, and I'll read this from Luke chapter four, verse 18, but you can also read it in Isaiah 61. He read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year 
of the Lord. He closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Lord has sent me to preach release to the prisoner, to the captive, to the oppressed. And so, my friends, if you are tied up, if you're isolated, if you're lonely, know this. Where the Lord is, there's blessing, there's blamelessness, and there is a bond that he will not break. And the Lord is with you. Let's pray. Father, I believe that you are, as you said, with me. I believe that you are with us today. And I love the fact, as one of my sisters was saying earlier this morning, that Jesus, you've just taken over the internet. I love that you are imposing your presence all over the place right now. And you are reminding us in this time of distress that you are with us, that you have not forsaken or abandoned us. So that even when we cry feeling forsaken, you hear our cries and you deliver. It's such an amazing word. It's a profound word, Father, because again, it calls on us simply to trust you. To trust you beyond this moment, beyond this day, beyond this season, to trust you that you've got a bigger plan as you did with Joseph that is rolling on. But more than the bigger plan, you actually care for each one of us. Personally, individually, you are calling each one of us into that deep bond with you. And you promised that we are in, Lord Jesus, you said we are in your Father's hand and no one can snatch us out of your Father's hand. We're in your hand, and no one can snatch us out of your hand. And so I just pray, oh, Lord Jesus, hold tight. <laughs> Don't let me go. And I pray for a remarkable and a wonderful release from the isolation and from prison and for those who are feeling the weight of the bondage. Yes, Lord, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are lost, but it is salvation to us who believe. And I pray that belief would flood our hearts today in Jesus' name. 